Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Herd Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. It is the first episode of 2018. Uh, we took a couple-week break, and here we are. Jason, how was your break? It was fantastic. Feeling very relaxed, refreshed. Awesome. All of those, all of those. New Year's rooms. was New Year's was great. Yeah, it was fantastic. The whole holiday season. Got a couple of new nephews. Like I said, I got some time to relax. A couple of new nephews during the holiday season. Yeah, awesome. In the last six, six, eight weeks. It's a Six great, weeks. A couple great presents. Yeah. Yeah. One was two days before Christmas, so that was particularly good timing. Uh, he's going to have that Christmas birthday where it's yeah. like he's going to get caught up in the mix. And but, To be fair, I mean, in the baby phase, uh, I don't really fuck with them until they're like two. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're cool. To they're pretty resilient. You can yeah. drop them a couple times. It'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I advocate know. for dropping babies, though. Uh, our guest tonight. Uh, owner of Travel Mail and uh, global uh, humanitarian social entrepreneur, Mallory Brown. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I think the most obvious place to start is what's a social entrepreneur? Mm, good question. <laughs> um, a social entrepreneur is someone who started a business whose mission is not only to be profitable, but also to give back to the world at large. So... Uh, to make an impact is the main goal of the company. The company being Travel Mail, which is, explain what the company does. So Travel Mail is a humanitarian production company. So I run charity campaigns all around the world that show a real everyday look at what life is like in different cultures and different places. And I connect people who want to give back here to amazing causes and people in need all around the world. So what, you said you connect with people that want to give back, and I, I think we can reference your TED Talk here, which mm-hmm. um, you, you spoke about that how to change the world and mm-hmm. before you're 30, right? Yeah. Um, kind of talk about the people you're trying to connect with and, and how you mentioned in the talk, millennials specifically, right, that they are, they're looking to connect with a certain type of cause. What is that cause, and how do you, how do you try to connect with millennials? Yeah, well, so I think that now, you know, we're in a very connected world, so people want to travel and see different places, and um, I work in international poverty, so it's developing countries all around the world, and that's an interest. It always has been, you know, there's people that are really, really in need, and the millennial generation is, we're so tangible, we want to see it and feel it and feel involved, and with social media, it's... um, you know, it's not enough to just hear about something. You want to really understand it and be a part of it and, and feel like you're a, you know, your presence is felt there. So I travel 
and try to create that capture what I'm experiencing and share it with other people. So travel with a film crew and we connect people live from across the world and do FaceTimes and video streams and, you know, to so that they feel like they're on the ground in Kenya or they're in the middle of Cambodia with me. So when you say you connect like via FaceTime or who are you're connecting to a donor? Is that something that yeah. they, they, they will donate in order to feel more connected to a particular cause? Right. So I would travel and document uh, people in need. So this is a village and this is the exact school that they need and here meet all of the kids. And then I will do engagement activities to connect donors back here so they feel like they really are a part of that school and they've seen it and felt it and met the kids. And um, they're, you know, even though they're not physically there through digital media, they're connected. Now, is this something that you will you make like a personal kind of message to a particular donor or is it like a general type of thing where anybody can go on to say YouTube or something like that and look at where you are at a particular time? So anyone can go on and follow along, watch any of my videos, participate, donate. The big donors, um, the ones who really, really give, they get personal messages and they get, um, you know, videos back and people who are really supporting it in a big way. Are these individuals or does it also include like businesses, corporations, like corporate givers? Yeah. So I work a lot with companies doing corporate social responsibility, brands that want to give back, want their company to stand for something greater, Um, but also individuals. And a lot of it is a brand trying to engage their following or engage their employee base to give. So the giving happens on an individual level, but the messaging might come through a brand. And how much of your how much of your work that you do um, outside of traveling is going to businesses or trying to procure donations? A, a lot of it, yeah. I mean, I do um, a lot in the before a trip to to gear up support and to get corporate sponsors and to figure out who's going to be who's going to be seeing it, and then I'll travel and go and create all the content and meet all the people and and be have the experience on the ground. And then we publish and blast it out to donors and um, and people donate. And a lot of times that even happens when I'm on the ground. So we'll be I'll be physically there and we'll be raising money while I'm there and it's a really intense, you know, but real time engagement. So what is your what project are you currently working on? What's your next big deal? My next big deal is the biggest deal I've ever done. It's um, I'm embarking on a global marathon. It's called Walk a Mile. It's based on the concept of walking a mile in someone else's shoes. And I'm walking a marathon one mile at a time with 26 different women, working women around the world. So it'll be 26 different locations and women who are who are fighting for a better life for their family. So they're impoverished women, like a woman who runs a tortilla stand in Guatemala. And I would walk with her and do a, you know, a day in her shoes. And um, we'll have 26 different women, 26 different stories. We publish it as a documentary series. And then every single episode, you, viewers can donate and help support that woman and other women in her community. Do you already have the 26 women picked out? I have some of them picked out, and some of them will come along as 
as the project progresses. How does that process go? All of these great questions. <laughs> I'm loving it. Um, so I have a really great network of of aid workers, of nonprofits, of NGOs around the world that... NGO? A non-government organization. Okay. It's basically a nonprofit that's not associated with the government, okay. so just an independent charity. And they host me when I'm on the ground. So um, they will, they're the facilitators that really make the change happen. Um, I'm telling their stories and broadcasting it to the world, but they're there every day in the grind trying to help people. So uh, they're my nonprofit partners. And those organizations benefit. So all the money raised, 100% of everything I raise goes to the nonprofits. And so, so wait, when you say 100% of what you raise, does that, do you take out like your salary and the, the cameraman's salary or is that something outside of, you're shaking your head no, so that means? So I don't take out my salary, no. I, um, <laughs> my salary and the cost of travel and production that's all covered by corporate sponsors really mm -hmm. so 100 percent of what i raise goes to helping people and that's me. incredible well thank you <laughs> it is pretty incredible it's a very good business model yeah so okay so continue i'm sorry so so, so i find partner organizations um so i would find a guatemalan nonprofit. That then introduces me to the woman who I will feature and I will walk with. Um, most likely she won't speak English, so I need that connection in between. And um, the nonprofit would would host me, translate, help make the make it happen on the ground, and then all of the money raised goes to helping that nonprofit. So the nonprofits are different women's organizations. A lending organizations that lend small business loans to women, that type of thing. So, okay, so you talked about, uh, obviously, there's a host that's happening in every country you go to. You're, you're being, you're staying, are you staying with families? Are you staying in hotels? Like, where do you stay normally? Does mm, it switch? It's a range, okay. yeah. It's normally, um, normally, sometimes homestays, Airbnb a lot. Just depends. So what? In these type of like, I don't like the word third world, but like these third world countries or whatever that you ever want to call them. Um, what is hospitality like there? Like what 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 do you experience? So um, that I mean, it's really interesting because knowing I'm coming on this podcast and we're talking about the hospitality industry and food and beverage, that takes a whole different form in a developing country because. Developing country. That's developing that's, country. Okay. Yeah. So oftentimes we stay with families and food is just a way that you connect with people and, you know, home cooking. And um, also in when you're living in poverty, food is a necessity. I mean, it's sustenance. It's it's the exotic flavors. And, you know, that's not nearly as important as just having food on the table. But often... People are so proud and they're so willing to share their culture. Um, we have families that cook for us and they would want, you know, me, my team, me, my videographer, photographer, who's ever there to eat. And it's their food. It's like, oh, my God, I'm sitting at your table and you're cooking for me and you're in the other room not eating. And so we're always like, don't eat everything and leave some because they're going to eat it after we leave. And it's... um. 
Is that is that custom? Is that what the guest eats first, and then they the 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 host sits down after to eat? Is that? Yeah, I I, th- I mean it depends on the culture, but definitely. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is I was in Sudan, which is a country that most Americans sort of fear, and we're like, uh, I don't know about going to Sudan. Sounds dangerous, but. Um, I randomly met a Sudanese family who invited us into their home and cooked this huge meal for us and offered us to sleep in their beds for the afternoon. And I mean, just the most welcoming people ever. And they cooked this big meal. And then we all, I mean, we eat their food. And it's just, um, I think of it in reverse. And if I was here and the Sudanese a couple Sudanese kids were walking down my street. Would I open my home to them? Would I cook a meal for them? I mean, there's no way. But that's just that's that's just the way that it is. It's it's um I think the 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 world that I have experienced is filled with just kindness, welcome, warm people. So I, I know from watching uh, Anthony Bourdain and Andrew Zimmer and like their travel shows, like they talk about kind of having this like a team kind of scour areas to make sure things are safe and like, and all of that. Right. So you're talking about this world you've experienced and it sounds very nice. Mm -hmm. Do you have someone scout an area before you go there to make sure that everything's going to be safe for you? No. Okay. I just dive in. Um, I mean, I have most of the time there's, there's, good communication on the ground before I go. So I have a trusting person, but, uh, but no, I kind of go in just with an open mind. And um, I have this saying that it's called default to good. And I default to that, the, that good is going to happen and that a dangerous situation is not going to come my way. And it's worked so far. I mean, and I don't think it's, it's that I'm naive. I think I just choose to see the positive and I choose to focus on that and not focus on the odd chance that something bad might happen. Well, I think as, as Americans, especially um, there's this over overwhelming sense of like unknown that occurs, mm-hmm. especially in places like you mentioned, Sudan, like Africa, especially, mm-hmm. and that that there's this fear of wherever you go, there's going it's going to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. But the the simple fact is, and and I think you're, what you're talking about is falls in line with this is that most places people live in people live everywhere you go, so they're they're not you don't choose to live in a dangerous place. You make the best that you can the the best of the moment that you're in mm-hmm. in those dangerous places right mm-hmm. so sudan might be under you know uh martial law whatever you want to call it like military rule but um there are really incredible people that are there oh yeah and it's um i have a great you know my particular form of work is i go in and see the everyday people it's the everyday life it's the people going to work every day trying to send their kids to school and um so there it's just an average Joe, and they are doing their daily life. And um, most people are incredibly, incredibly kind. Um, My videographer, I've had the same videographer for the past five years. He's traveled the world with me. 
And we always joke when we get on a plane, we're in DTW ready to take off and we're like, ready to go hang out with some nice people. <laughs> like, I mean, that sounds kind of bad for our country, but it's sort of true. It's, um, yeah, it's, I'm shocked by how, how doors are opened for me when I'm visiting. So but, I was going to say, but at the same time, one of the questions I guess I have is like, it's, it's really great to help everybody, anybody, anywhere, but there's a lot of so much work that also could be done at home. So okay. is there ever, are there similar type of like social entrepreneur uh, models that focus here at, you know, in the city of Detroit or nationally or just, you know, addressing problems here at the same yeah, time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is need everywhere. Okay. So uh, even me, I work domestically. So I do um, projects in Detroit and around the country as well as international. I think I stand out for my international work because it's rare to meet someone who grew up in Farmington Hills, Michigan, but I have been to Ethiopia, you know, so yeah. that's kind of unique, <clears throat> but, um, and but, cool. And cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so for Walk a Mile, one of the miles will be in Detroit. Oh, cool. For sure. Um, I like to show that, I mean, I love my city, so I like to feature Detroit when I can, but, um, but also the goals to show people are the same everywhere, including my own backyard. Cool. So why, why the focus then on developing countries? Is that something that you, well, let's talk about initially you started with world clothesline. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that. So that kind of built, built your way into developing countries, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. That launched me into this whole career. Uh, when I was much younger, I, well, I started backpacking when I was just out of college for fun. I would work uh, in different media industries here, um, domestic or here in Michigan. And uh, when I saved up enough, I'd go backpack somewhere. And I just loved to travel, so that was my hobby. And after a few years, I decided that I could really do something with this. I could take the talents that I have in the media industry, my knowledge in film and photography and storytelling, and use that to help the people I was meeting when I was traveling. And that was truly, that's what I really want to, you know, that's my passion. So when I was 24, I started a company called World Clothesline, which was a buy one, give one clothing company, sort of based on the model that Tom Shoes operates, where you buy one item here and then the same item is given away somewhere around the world. And um, so I sold clothes on an online retail store and then I gave away clothes equivalent one-to-one -one for what I sold to people in need all around the world, refugee camps, impoverished villages, homeless shelters, community centers. And I would travel and personally give away the clothes so that my customers would see, I purchased this t-shirt and now I'm watching this person receive a t-shirt because of me. And that engagement, that sort of customer appreciation and full circle philanthropy is really that's what I became really good at so that's what I have carried into travel mail and now with all of my different campaigns are really about that full circle philanthropy I want the people who are supporting here to feel the actual impact of their help so full circle circle philanthropy is mm -hmm. different than say donating to like the American 
heart association because you're seeing directly where your dollar is going. Right. So great example is I went to Haiti in 2015 and I met an amazing family. It was a single mother of five. Her name, the mother's name was Chantal and she was living in a displaced person's camp. So Haiti had a huge earthquake in 2010 that many people remember. And since then she had been in this displaced person's settlement and you know, when you have nothing to begin with and then you lose that, it's really, there's nothing to build from. So she was kind of stuck and working so hard, but just not gaining any any ground. So I, when I was there, I raised $10,000 for my friends and family back home to move her out of the camp, buy her a house that, uh, well, I paid rent on a house for a year enrolled all of her kids in school and got her a job. And I did all of that when I was there. So my friends and family could see, like, wow, I actually I donated 50 bucks to this thing and now I'm seeing this woman's new house and I'm watching her kids go to school and I'm seeing the direct result from my donation. And then beyond that, um, I went back two years later to check in on the family and to see how they're doing and how did that, how did that boost help them. And it was incredible, the difference. I mean, $10,000 in Haiti goes a long way. And all of the kids had grown like a foot because they were finally well-nourished. They were speaking English and showing me their math and they're super into school. And the mom had a successful business and she was actually single mother of five. She was actually adopting another child because she felt like she had been so fortunate that she wanted to help someone else. And so now she has six kids. I think uh, the, so you said $10,000 is a long way, right? Mm -hmm. And and it makes me think of those old Sally Struthers commercials where she was crying on TV and she's like, for 12 cents a day, you can feed, uh, you know, a starving child in whatever country, which isn't full circle uh, philanthropy, but it's like, you know, it's close enough, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So this idea that, uh, your dollar goes a long way. I don't think pe- I don't know if people understand that as much as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of explain that a little bit more detail. So, if someone donates ten dollars, how does that help? So, if they're donating through one of my campaigns, that you know, all ten dollars goes directly to a nonprofit organization, and that buys a wide variety of things. Um, it depends on the cause. So with walk a mile, it would go probably towards a small business loan for a woman. So, um, but whatever it goes, it's very transparent. That's the point, right? Right. Yeah. You can see exactly where it goes and it go, this perhaps is the reason why I choose to work in developing countries. Um, because I'm not a giant organization, you know, I'm not a, a Red Cross where I've got this huge infrastructure and all of these things in place to make a difference. I'm just one person. I mean, Travel Mal is my own personal company. So I can make a, a, a large impact with a small amount of money in a developing country. And I can go there and do it myself and, and be able to show like the powerful amount, you know, that, that, that little bit of help really made a difference. So, uh, that's sort of how my company operates is to is to 
like be that pinpoint of change. And that, yeah, your money does go, it goes a lot further in, in poor places. We've um, talked with, uh, with Joe All, who owns Joseph Wesley Tea, and we talked for a brief period with him about um, fair trade and, and like the kind of idea of what Americans think fair trade is and what like a fair wage here. Um, so, you know, if we take, for example, a fair wage being 12 for 14 bucks an hour, um, what, what is a living wage in, in a, in a developing country? Like it, for someone who's working mm-hmm. in, in Guatemala, for example, do you, is it, is it a dollar a day? Is that something that, um, as I mean, it's a pretty fair judgment. There's, um, I don't know the actual statistics, but Less than, living on less than $2 a day is considered living in extreme poverty. And there's a large percentage of our world that lives that way. So um, I have a little boy in Ethiopia that I personally sponsor. I just met him when I was there, and I <laughs> fell in love with this 13-year-old boy who was supporting himself. He had been supporting himself since the age of nine. And his story is quite incredible. In Ethiopia, it's mostly a farming country, and school stops at the age of eight because kids are expected to then go in the fields and farm. And he wanted to get an education. So when he was nine, he packed up his stuff, and he started walking to the closest city and got there, took him a couple days, um, enrolled himself in elementary school, and then he started working on the street, shining shoes to pay rent and to buy books and to support himself. At nine years old? At nine years old. Holy shit. So I met him when he was 13. It'd be hard to walk a mile in his shoes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, Incredible, incredible young man. And I saw his little mud hut that he lived in, and I I spent a couple days with him, and he lived on less than a dollar a day. And he ate... um, I don't know if you've had Ethiopian food, but yeah. injera is the bread that is circular and everything served on top of it. So injera is supposed to be, um, it's sort of the plate, but also the means to like dip and soak up the good sauces and meats and lentils and everything you're eating. Um, but he ate straight injera because he couldn't afford any sort of meat or protein or uh, toppings. And so he just ate bread. And, um, but I mean, that's the reality for a lot of people in the world. And, and I mean, the dedication of this little boy and his desire to have a better life. I mean, I wish that we appreciated education like he did. I I think a question that comes out of that is like, what, uh, how did you recognize this guy like how, how did you because obviously like maybe the uh, NGO that you talked to didn't like point him out specifically mm-hmm. do you have like an eye to, to like you know connect with people or do, as, do you just have like a feeling sometimes or how does that work yeah so um so he met I met him specifically because I was walking down the street in the in the village where he was living and he asked to shine my shoes that I was wearing flip-flops and I was like, I'm sorry, buddy, like you can't shine my flip flops. But I thought it was interesting that he asked me. So then I just started chatting with him. And 
Um, a lot of it's, you know, if, if you find someone that's open to you and, and willing to share and speaks good enough English. Um, but I think I have a natural instinct to connect to people that are different than me. Um, my younger brother is disabled, and so I grew up next to someone who lives in a different reality than the rest of us. Uh, he can't speak, actually. So I um, am very comfortable with people who don't speak my language or um, or just have like a glaring difference in lifestyle than me because I, I grew up with my brother. And so I think I connect with people in a deeper way that's sort of – uh, doesn't need, you know, language or an obvious connection. And it's sort of that like soul connection that you can feel with someone. The, the Ethiopian uh, kid, he spoke English? He did, yeah. Oh, he amazing. was, uh, his main goal is to be a tour guide. So he was trying to learn English so he could then um, be a tour guide and show Americans around Ethiopia. So, He's a great one, too. I went back to Ethiopia after four years, and he had just graduated from high school. And um, he, I was so proud of him that he, he did that, and he put himself through school. So I told him I would pay for his college education. So I send him his tuition money every semester, and he just finished his first semester in college. That's incredible. That is so incredible. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so let's switch gears for a second because you brought some stuff with you, right? I did. So yes. let's open one of these beers. So this is, uh, it says these beers are from, this one's from Guatemala? That one's from Haiti. Haiti, Haiti. Of prestige. Sorry. Okay, so tell us about the beers that you procure and like, what was that about? You bring a beer <laughs> home every, time, every country you go to? I do. I bring a beer home from every country I go to. Um, I just buy them from stores and wrap them up in my suitcase and hope they don't break. <laughs> they, I've only had one break, and my whole suitcase smelled like Madagascar beer, but um, I was okay with that. But <laughs> yeah, um, so it's it's interesting because when I was uh, I wasn't a big beer drinker, and travel made me get into beer because I. That's really sort of what's available um, in a lot of places. So I did a big trip when I was 26. It's the biggest trip I've ever done um, in Africa. I drove from Cairo to Cape Town. So for those that are good at geography, that's the northeastern corner of Africa to the southwestern corner of Africa. So I drove the length of the continent. How, and how, over how many days? It took me 100 days exactly. Wow. I think I quit my job. <laughs> um, yeah, it was very cool. So, uh, so we went through eleven different countries driving, and every country you'd cross the border, and it was, you know, change your money, figure out what the new religion is, figure out what side of the road they drive on, because some drive on the right, some drive on the left. Um, swap out your SIM card so your phone will work, and then but, uh, every country. Almost every country really? has a different SIM card. Like, you know, you maybe use Verizon in the U.S., but then you cross into Mexico, you use whatever Mexico has. Oh, no. I'm just saying, like, every every bit of what you just said is, like, there's a lot to go between. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, we did it 
for 11 different countries. And, um, and so you cross the border and you've got a whole different new set of beer to try. (laughs) Um, and the, the names are really cool. So often the beer names are city names or, um, in Tanzania specifically. So that's where Mount Kilimanjaro is. So one of the breweries, it's just Kilimanjaro beer. And um, one beer is called Safari beer. And I mean, it's just so straightforward. Um, in Nepal, Nepal is where Mount Everest is. And so it's just Everest beer. And it's just like, how cool is this? I clearly have to buy some and bring some home. And, and so beer, like, if you don't have any, like, knowledge of the history of beer like we would brew beer to drink because it's safer to drink than the water sometimes can we talk about the water in these countries mm-hmm. and, and and how dangerous it could be to drink water sometimes oh yeah it's um it's i mean definitely just can't can't drink the water so we i drink bottled water the whole time that i'm traveling that and, that, and that's a luxury right uh, yeah, yeah definitely um you know, most of the families we're meeting would get water from a well. And in sub-Saharan Africa, women walk an average of 3.7 miles a day to get well or to get water from a well and then carry it back to their home. So um, they carry water on their heads or rolling the barrels or however they do it. And yeah, it's quite impressive. But so we would buy bottled water. And so for that trip, I spent you know, three and a half months brushing my teeth and drinking bottled water, cooking with bottled water, washing my hands with bottled water before I put my contacts in the whole deal because waterborne diseases are no joke and you don't want to get those. So yeah, water is precious. Can, can we talk for a second? This is kind of off the topic of developing countries and more the topic of um, insane white people with this whole unfiltered <laughs> water thing. Have you, have you seen the news stories about this? Yeah. There's people spending 60 bucks for two gallons of water because it's unfiltered. Oh. What? You haven't heard this either? No. no. Oh shit. Yeah. So business insider did a story about these. Uh, the, it's mostly, it seemed to me mostly out West where people are trying to purchase un, untreated water, unfiltered, untreated water because it's quote unquote more natural. Mm-hmm. And, um, trying to drink it for, and literally health food stores out there saying we're all out of this unfiltered, unfiltered, untreated water getting more in next week, but it's going to be more expensive. So they're spending 60 bucks, 30 bucks a gallon for water. Wow. Because it's untreated. Well, I mean, if it's coming from directly in the mountains in Canada and it's, you know, I would drink it too. It's probably so pure and amazing, but in a developing country where there's no sewage system and there's people are bathing in the rivers. And, yeah, I mean, does that you don't mean we can bottle up some of... water from the Detroit River and sell that, it for That's essentially, essentially what's mean, happening out there. Like they're, That's they're, insane. This isn't the, the mountains of anywhere. We could slap the, the word Detroit on ours and it's like, it's <laughs> yeah. already cool. <laughs> right, exactly. Detroit this is Detroit water. water. Untreated, unfiltered. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> right? It's like so, trendy. Yeah, and, and and this is this is the point, right? So, like, this is my point is like this kind of like desire for like to to kind of experience what 
like you know it's unfiltered or like whatever like where people in other countries developing countries would kill for mm-hmm. essentially kill for is a bad metaphor but like um a treatment plant mm-hmm. right a, a treatment plant in africa would be or in any of these developing countries would be you know looked at as like the 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 best thing that ever happened to them but we have people in this country that are like well you know fuck a treatment plant i want i want to just drink the water the way it, you know that someone somewhere else would drink it mm-hmm. it seems bizarre right I, i'd say so it does seem bizarre but i mean we do a lot of things that are bizarre <laughs> every time i come back from a trip there's a different thing that i appreciate i remember coming back from that big africa trip i couldn't get over carpet I was like, oh my gosh, carpet. Because I had gone four months not feeling any carpet. And you stuff like that you just forget. And then like my feet are clean and I'm walking on this like soft ground. What? This isn't a dirt floor. I just loved carpet. Are, are, is there is there a marked difference between uh we talk about the one percent here and then you know, whatever, like the really super rich people, but there's a middle class here, an obvious middle class. Is there in a developing country? Are are there like vastly richer people that live in mansions and like these th- that? Yeah, kind of, there is. There's a disparity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's a similar breakdown as to how we have it here. I mean, in every country, there's the super wealthy, then there's the middle class, and then there's lower middle class, and I mean, you have. It runs the gamut in every country. I think percentages are probably different. Um, in developing countries, there's fewer wealthy. The working middle class is probably smaller, and then you have more people that are struggling. But yeah, you can find you can find everything anywhere. I mean, yeah. Have you been taken to like a wealthy person's house in one of these developing countries? Yeah, I mean, as a as an American, and I'm a young female American, it's sort of like a, you know, you're like a little celebrity when you walk into some of these places, and so everyone's all excited to, you know, talk to me, and and we get a lot of invitations to go visit the mayor, visit the governor, visit, you know, some some diplomat or something. So yeah, I've been and it's quite funny actually because most of the time we don't take I don't take any nice clothes because I'm just going to be roughing it and backpacking and camping and doing whatever, but um so there've been multiple times where I have to scramble to put together a nice outfit because I'm going to go meet someone of status and I wasn't prepared but uh, I mean that's always fun and you get to see a different side of society I would say the mansions aren't equivalent to our mansions but uh, you know but the the care and the the presentation and the you know it's it's just their own their own version of wealth it's it's noticeable do you have any memories of food that you experienced those places Hmm. I mean, I'd say we probably are often served drinks there because alcohol is sort of a luxury. So that's where you would get, you know, you'd have a cocktail because, I mean, I don't even think you can have a cocktail in a 
you know, in a village with mud huts, they don't really do liquor. It's just straight beer. Um, so that sort of that sort of experience, yeah. Um, so, but the rum was probably. I mean, when I was in Cuba, I mean, you couldn't even escape rum. Rum was everywhere because I mean, the sugar cane. It was just almost like the, you know, one of the main, uh, you know economic uh drivers of the country you know just mm-hmm. people rum everywhere um which i liked because, yeah you know yeah and, and it, it was cheap and it was awesome actually this is uh this rum is from nicaragua and yeah they drink rum just like it's water and um it was funny at a restaurant if you're if you go around and everyone's gonna order rum of some sort they just bring a fifth to the table and mm-hmm. like here's a fifth and here's a two liter and go to town, like pour your own. And I'm like, you're going to measure this? Like how much did we order? We just get the <laughs> It takes me thing? back to can- the Cancun uh, spring break days. <laughs> yeah. Like the $40 all inclusive. Uh, and then they're like, oh, here's just a bottle and some mixers. Go at it. Yep. Well, and, and I was making a comment when you brought this box in. It's like this, it's a 12 pack of, uh, you know, yeah. small airline bottles, I guess you'd call them. We don't sell 12 packs of airline bottles here. Do we? I mean, not that I know of. Well, I mean, the liquor stores, yeah, they get, I mean, when you go into the stores and they've got the little airline bottles, they get them in packs like that. Oh, they do? Yeah. Okay, but they just yep. break them up. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Partic- right. I mean, I've been in some of the ones in Highland Park or where they definitely still have them. Like, they'll either be like, they might not be in a box, but they'll have like the plastic, like a eight or 12 pack of pop, you know, they'll have like the plastic that's holding them together. But yeah, they definitely come like that. So Mallory, when you come back from a trip... Right. So you, you you have talked a lot about like what you experience in these other places. What there has to be things that you come back to and you're you said carpet as one of the examples. Like what what else like do you do you just take for granted every day here that and I, I know clean water is probably one of them as well, but like what else is there that like you just take for granted that you don't recognize until you're gone? I think the um For me, I notice how much energy we spend on trivial things. So I, and like most women, try to make my clothes match, you know? So if I'm like not wear black and brown or like make my accessories match. And I always notice that when I come home because that is not even a fraction of a thought in a developing country because it's just like clothes, You know, and so I think when I come back, I'm mostly really chilled out and I'm I don't care about all of the nonsense stuff. And I'm just very, um, very easygoing. So I remember coming back from one of my trips. I'd been gone for a while and my car battery died. And normally if my car battery dies, I'd be so annoyed and I would go take it in right away because this is ridiculous, you know, but I was just in this chill mode and and it was the middle of winter and I would get up in the morning and go jumpstart my car and I wouldn't care at all. It would be like, no biggie. Like I'm just jumpstart my car. I mean, you know, it's like daily routine. And I did that for two weeks and then I was like, yeah, I should probably go take my car and (laughs) and get this fixed. But it didn't, it didn't, in, you know, in the developing world, it sort of said that, um, Every day you wake up and you deal with the problems you face that day. So it's 
how am I going to provide for food for my family today? My car doesn't start today. My kids' school shut down today. Like, you know, it's you're so immediate and you're so focused on immediate. And you could argue maybe that's why that people don't progress because it's not a future-based society. So people don't have a concept of saving. They don't have a concept of planning for the future because you're so living in the moment because there's so many struggles every day. And I sort of, you know, you take that, (laughs) you sort of take that in and deal with, um, you know, our struggles seem minuscule compared to theirs. So, um, you know, when I'm planning a trip, I'll say, okay, we're going to drive between this village and this village. It should take, it should be a six hour drive, block off the whole day because you're going to come a cross hurdles and you're going to have to deal with that in the moment and there's no way to anticipate it. It's just everything takes longer. There's going to be unforeseen problems and you just wake up every day knowing that. And so having the ability to even have transportation in these places seems like a privilege, right? Yeah. It's, um, I really appreciate my car when I come home. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've ridden in a wide variety of transportation vehicles. Um, Ridden... I mean, normally we start every trip with a car. Whether we end it with a car is a different story. A lot of times that breaks down or it, uh, for some reason, sometimes I'm going really remote and the roads are too bad, the mud's too high or your car's going to get stuck. So we just transfer or hitchhike. Or One time I climbed on the top of a fruit truck because they were going in the direction I needed to go and um, make it happen. I mean, we ride motorcycles a lot motos because they're the fastest way to get anywhere and um i mean it's quite an adventurous experience and it's uh yeah so yeah transportation is a big one when you're in these developing countries and we, we have a lot of talk about like the border here right so like you know the wall mm-hmm. the, the, that type of talk um are borders more open in Africa or like when you, when you cross from one country to another, Mm -hmm. is it noticeable? I think, I mean, this is my own personal experience, obviously. Um, but I think things are more loose unless there's a major political. Yeah, I was going to say probably in some of those conflict zones, but outside of those, you'd think that, the resources it take, would take a lot of resources to man those expansive borders, right? I mean, it's such a big place. You think about what goes into it. I don't know, right? I mean, I've um, crossing one of the borders. We got stuck at the border for three weeks because of political conflicts, and not, nothing. I mean, it wasn't a war zone, but it was just um, three weeks. Three weeks. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, but borders were. I'd be pretty livid. Yeah, I'd be pretty pissed. Well, it was so it was on this Africa trip. I keep coming back to it, but it was so epic. Um, So I was in Egypt trying to cross into Sudan. So mind you, it was the first border crossing of my entire trip. And at the time, Benghazi had just happened. And so the U.S. and Sudan had a few back and forths with um, bureaucracy. And so... Sudan closed their borders to Americans. So it wasn't a dangerous thing. It was just my visa didn't work. And so they wouldn't let me in at the border. So we um, 
And interestingly enough, that border crossing, you have to travel on the Nile River. There's no land crossing. You have to take a boat from Egypt to Sudan. And that boat only travels once a week. So every Monday was our opportunity to cross. And so we had to figure out how to get special permission from the Sudanese government to, to enter the country, which was quite challenging from Egypt, where I didn't know anyone. I mean, I don't know anyone in the Sudanese government, period, but like not being home and being able to contact people was a challenge. But, um, but we did. took us three weeks, but we found, we found someone who helped us and got us special permission. How, how does that three-week kind of detour affect what, the rest of your trip? Um, well, yeah, it threw us off on our timeline for sure. Um, I was doing clothing deliveries to different orphanages along the route, so we just called ahead and said, look, we're going to be three weeks later. But honestly, it's sort of expected. That's the whole you wake up every morning and see what's going on. So um, so it extended the trip for sure, pushed everything back. And a few things we had planned, dates were set, obviously needed to change. But you learn to go with the flow real quick. I mean, that's just sort of the... That's like the the way it works. So, um, so we just adjusted and continued on. And I, I lived three weeks at this cool border city. It's called Aswan in Egypt, and we were five Americans in this Egyptian town, and became everyone knew us because how bizarre is that? And walking around this town, people, everyone knew we were waiting for our visas. So all the Egyptians would say like get your visas yet and i mean we just had friends and it was it was a blast so you've talked a couple times about uh following up with people right so you had the the single mom and you had the the student the nine-year-old who was kind of supporting himself at nine um Mm -hmm. how often do you follow up with places so uh frequently i mean my so oddly enough, I keep in touch with most people on Facebook. Facebook is everywhere. And most of the time, we, I connect with locals on the ground, and then they'll reach out every once in a while. So um, so, so the, there's internet access for, for people that even in these developing countries that are they're super insanely poor from, what, from an American perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, they have access to the internet and to Facebook. Yeah. Awesome. It's not as... You know, we have Wi-Fi everywhere, and it's more concentrated than that. So there's internet cafes, and and a lot of times I go to hotels to bum their Wi-Fi, and there'll be locals sitting all around the outside of the hotel. <laughs> Everyone's bumming Wi-Fi, but um, but yeah, there's internet, and you know, it's some. I think people are surprised if they go, if you've never been to a developing country and then you go, what you expect to see and what you actually see are going to be different. So Kenya, for example, has one of the most robust mobile phone industries in the world. So almost every single Kenyan has a cell phone where that's not true in any other country. And so you'll see tribal people. Kenya has um, the Maasai tribe, which are the people that jump really high. If you've ever seen those, they're like really tall, skinny African people that jump. That's kind of their tribal routine. And they wear 
claws and really bright color claws, and they live in the middle of the grasslands with their cattle, and it's a very tribal life, but they're all carrying around iPhones. I mean, it's so weird. Mm. Um, yeah, the internet, I'd say, is probably the most surprising, like, things are advanced, and that's really everywhere. And, and there's no kind of governmental kind of restriction that happens? Um, many of the, I believe many of the cell phone companies and internet companies are government run. But that's just my, my, what I've observed. I know in Cuba it was a government run telecommunications. Yeah, and I meant you to bring to up your a, Cuban kind of. It was cool. I like, that was one of the things I liked about it actually getting away from the internet. I mean, people, seem like people had phones, but there was only a few like Wi-Fi parks, and you'd have to go to this government office and buy a card to scratch off a password to be able to use. I mean, I didn't definitely didn't see the the few touristy hotels did not have swarms of people around them. But yeah, it was weird because one of the things I really enjoyed about going around Havana <clears throat> was like seeing the sense of community and people not on their phones all the time, and then you'd go to this internet park and it was the exact opposite. Everybody's just got their face in their phone, which was whatever, but it was a good experience. I really like, we didn't have it in our Airbnb. I loved waking up and reaching for my phone and being like, Oh, I can't even use the internet. Yeah. Like thinking about that, I don't even know what that's like right now. Cause I, I reach for my phone and it's like, it's there. There's like 60 notifications in the morning. Like, Oh, this person tweeted about something. I was like, I don't really fucking care doesn't matter that they tweeted about this, yeah. but I still look at it <laughs> and it takes up, you know, a couple minutes in the morning, right? Like mm-hmm. most people don't give a shit, right? It's uh, it's very grounding. It's really, it's a breath of fresh air to not be so connected. I mean, you're still connected, but not as nearly as much. So Mallory, when's the next project start? So walk a mile. I'm walking my first couple miles in March. And, and where, are the, where are the first couple? In Central Can, America. So okay. um, so Guatemala is one. I'm still figuring out the other countries. But um, but I'm going to do it continent by continent. So we'll chunk it away, and eventually I'll get all 26 miles done. And if people want to donate to your cause, where do they go? They can go to my website. It's travelmail.com. That's T-R-A-V-E-L-M-A-L.com. Yep. Okay. And hit the donate button, and you can donate through my incredible crowdfunding partner, CrowdRise, and donate directly to my cause, and 100% of your money will go to helping people in need. And as we've talked about, like every little bit counts. So a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars is greatly encouraged. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, every little bit helps. Awesome. Mallory Brown, uh, CEO, Travel Mall, Mail, is that what you... We'll take it. CEO? Normally that, I go founder, but founder, I'll take CEO. CEO, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, best of luck on your travels. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating talk. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having uh, me. Until next time, dine well, friends.